Hey there, guys. If you don't already know, this podcast is based in Rhode Island. Within this state, there are many great businesses. So let me take this time to tell you about Tanya Carroll and the Wickford Way. Wickford is a great downtown area. Wickford Village is a family destination all year long. Wickford Village provides prestige, street-lined with one-of-a-kind, family-owned and operated shops featuring jewelry, houseware, clothing, and more. The Wickford Way is an exclusive publication by and for the residents of the Wickford RI area. So do you work with customers in the Wickford area, or are you looking to expand your footprint into the Wickford area? Wickford loves local. Tanya is looking for reputable businesses to recommend to the Wickford area residents. By becoming a preferred partner, Tanya can connect Rhode Island businesses directly with families of the Wickford area. Find out how by checking out their Instagram at the Wickford Way or call Tanya at 781-475-0818. So thanks, guys. Make sure to check out the Wickford Way and enjoy the episode. Stay hungry. Stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I have a dream. We'll one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Knowledge is Power podcast. Now, I've had some pretty amazing guests on uh, in the past who have done a lot of things, but I can tell you this, my next guest has, has done pretty much everything in his life and is one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life, and I truly mean that, Joe. So, Thank you, Max. Uh, without any, you know, anything, I'm not going to say anything else right now. Joe, if you'd like to introduce yourself, that'd be great. Sure. Um, well, my name is Joe Scott. I'm a local lawyer. Uh, I also own Pinecrest Golf Course uh, off of Richmond in Richmond. Uh, I've been in the area for about 40 years. Uh, actually lived in Exeter over 50 years now. My wife and I just celebrated our 50th year anniversary. Congratulations. Uh, thanks. Thanks. I can't believe I made it 50 years. <laughs> but uh, no, it's been an interesting career or interesting life I've had. I'm now 71 years old and, and uh I grew up, quite frankly, I, I was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, and I grew up uh, outside of Cincinnati in a little town called Westchester, and uh, all my relatives, uh, I would say about 60-70% of them are from the hills of Kentucky. We, we uh, Most of them grew up in what, what they call Appalachia and down there, and uh, Butcher Holler down there with uh, all those country singers. Um, I grew up in a small town, Westchester, Ohio. Uh, Interesting enough, uh, we, we weren't too well off. We didn't have indoor plumbing until I was in the fourth grade. We, uh, we had an outhouse. I know a lot of you people out there don't know what an outhouse is. <laughs> we, were, we were upscale outhouse, so we had two holers. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if anybody knows that, we also had the pump out back, which you pump the, uh, the water to get it out of the ground. And uh, when we took baths, uh, there were three of us boys and my mother and father. When we took baths, uh, we took it in the kitchen in a big galvanized tub, and uh, I was always the one to jump in first. I didn't want to get in the tub after my brothers uh, and that, you know. I wanted the clean water as it came in and say. But I grew up in Cincinnati and, and uh, went to high school out there, graduated in 1968 from Lakota High School. Um, 
at that time, I really had not thought about going to college. I was just, I was working most of my life and, and thought about just going on to work. Um, interesting enough, early on, uh, I didn't realize business would be my career, but my senior year in high school, we had this program called uh, DECA. It was Distributed Education Clubs of America. It was where you actually worked a half a day, and then you went to school a half a day. So that program was geared, I guess, like you'd see today, where they have business programs. It was geared to business, mm-hmm. and we worked a half a day. And uh, starting at 14, I worked at Burger Chef Restaurant and different restaurants uh, early on. And I'm, I'm proud to say that my senior year, even though I was not a big uh, Great guy. I, I was uh, selected as the student of the year in the DECA program. Of course, I'd been president of the class for the full year. So uh, I was student of the year that year. Made my parents very proud. The, uh, the reason I guess I got to Rhode Island uh, is interesting. Not interesting, but uh, in 1968, as most of you know, the Vietnam War was just starting to rev up quite a bit. And they had what they called back then, which a lot of you young kids, Max, probably don't know about, is the draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1968, uh, July 9th, uh, was the number one draft choice. So in January of 1968, when they said July 9th was the number one draft choice, that's my birthday, I said, I'm not going in the Army. So my buddy and I next door, we decided that we would join what they call a kiddie cruiser program, and we joined the Navy. We went into the Navy, and uh, that was where my whole life started to change quite a bit. Uh, initially, I went to Great Lakes, Illinois, and... Spent my boot camp years up there, and after I got out of boot camp there, I went to uh, down to Mayport, Florida, and was stationed on a destroyer down there for about a year, and and after that, I got transferred back to Great Lakes to go to school. After school, I got transferred to Newport, Rhode Island, which from a kid coming from Cincinnati, I thought it was going to be like London, all foggy and cold <laughs> and misty and dreary, but I... I Went to Newport, and I got to tell you, I love the state of Rhode Island. I love the city of Newport. Uh, in 1969, I guess, is when I came to Newport, and I met a girl who had just graduated. Well, she graduated high school in 1970. She was a student nurse at Newport Hospital. Uh, I actually was attending bar all, quite a bit in Newport while I was in the Navy, and I met her uh, in 1970 uh, while she was going to school at Newport Hospital, and that's my current wife, 50 years. Uh, after that, uh, I got out of the Navy in 72, and I um, really, uh, I, I wanted to go to college. Uh, honestly, I realized the four years in the Navy, when I would salute officers, I should say, the uh, lieutenants, the lieutenant JGs, the ensigns, uh, I said, gee, how come these guys are officers? And you realize that's because they went to college. So that's when I realized if they can be officers and go to college, I can go to college. So I applied and I got accepted at, at the University of Rhode Island. And uh, fortunately, uh, the years in the Navy and some, some extra uh, education, I was able to uh, get an advanced placement in URI and ended up after I started about, about 30 credits, I guess. And I uh, went through URI, moved into Exeter. Wife and I moved into Exeter. Oh, great, thanks. My wife and I moved into Exeter. She still had two more years at Newport Hospital. And I was just starting at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, And I went through University of Rhode Island a couple of years, two and a half years, actually, and graduated from the University of Rhode Island in 1975. And I immediately started uh, applying to law schools. I got accepted two or three of them. 
And uh, I decided on one that was local where I could live in Exeter and travel to Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh, and uh, I ended up at Quinnipiac, I mean, at uh, University of Bridgeport School of Law. Uh, I took a year off between school because of my younger brother and I, We had he had some issues, so we brought him up and tried to get him straightened out. And then I went on four years night school. I'll never forget those four years. Traveled 100 miles down, 100 miles back to uh, uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. That four years was, was interesting, too. I, I actually... Started my political career then. My mother-in-law was a big uh, politician or just interested in politics. And uh, so I became a, uh, a state rep in 1975. Well, I got elected in 75. I spent uh, 76 through 80, which my four years in law school, I actually uh, spent in the legislature. So the two kind of went hand in hand. It was very good. Um, it was very good. The legislature, making the laws. And going to law school, I was learning to be a lawyer, so it worked out very well. And then uh, in 1980, I graduated law school. At the time, I got asked by a group of local guys here in Richmond uh, who were running what, what is called the Charahoe Exeter Credit Union at the time, uh, and that was in 1980. They asked me to come in and ask if I would take over the credit union and, and be the treasurer manager of it. And uh, I did, and I ran that for five years uh, through the Jimmy Carter years, quite frankly, which was a challenging time because if most of you know those early 80s, uh, the older ones of us, uh, Prime was 18 and a half, 19 and a half. Uh, you know, they were paying 13, 12, and 13% interest on CDs and different deposit accounts. But the credit union, which was only three and a half million at the time, uh, was was pretty much underwater because they were only earning about eight nine percent on their their loans and so that was an interesting time and that five years I was able to uh, grow up to nine million turn it around and the credit union when I left in 85 to go full-time practice law was doing very well uh, a lot of you weren't around then but if you go by Richmond police station that was the old charity who exited a credit union that okay uh, quite frankly um, we used to be in in, a, in the little, I'll tell you, little, little, right across from Women's Insurance, there's a little white building. Uh, I'm not sure. I think there's a beauty shop in there now. Yeah, this and, is, and this is in Hope Valley. Right? Yeah, Hope Valley, Wyoming yeah. area. That uh, that little white building used to be the Charahoe Exeter Credit Union. And when I took it over in 80, it was totally manual. Uh, we had some great help there. It was me and eight eight girls, quite frankly. But uh, I'll never forget the drive through If you look, the drive through window is still there. Uh, it was not automated. It was a, an old drawer from uh, a uh, uh, Chester Bureau or Chester Drawers Bureau where, you know, we just rolled it out on these wheels and brought it back and in and out. That was the drive through <laughs> So we were really manual then. But in uh, 84, 85, I left there. We had earnings of about three, 400000 They decided that uh, it was time to build the new credit union which that building um, a lot of you know joe gardner joe gardner was on the board at the time and he constructed the building and beautiful building uh, and that was the uh, that was the credit union for four or five years uh, i kind of bailed out of there after 85 never got involved anymore but uh, as many of you know the banking crisis in 89 uh, 1989 the banking crisis came about and uh, governor sunland at the time closed all what we call RISDIC insured institutions. If you understand what RISDIC is or FDIC insurance, 
those is uh, those were a uh, insurance agency per se who insured deposits with, that you had say in the bank if you had a hundred thousand in there it was insured guaranteed that the bank went under you'd get your hundred thousand back well at the time uh, RISDIC insured most of the credit unions and around that same time in 88 myself and a group of uh, I guess there were about 20 25 of us initially uh, through the leadership of a good friend of mine, former state senator Bill O'Neill, I was a, I was his good friend of his. Even though Bill was a Democrat, I was a Republican. We still <laughs> we still got along, and uh, Bill and I put together a group of about 20, 25 people. A lot of the locals from Wakefield area, mostly Bill. Bill knew most of them. Governor Gary, he was involved with us. There was uh, the Fiore, Tony Fiore, a lot of them. Joe Marin, I can't name them all, but. We raised, uh, we put together uh, an application, and uh, fortunately, I, because of my experience at the credit union, uh, I kind of led the charge on putting the performers and the prospectus together, and and uh, we opened what was called Peer Bank back in 1988, and uh, we chose to go at that time. We chose to go with RISDIC insurance as opposed to FDIC insurance, even though we were a commercial bank. Uh, only because we, we could get the insurance with $2 million in capitalization. FDIC wanted $4 million in capitalization, and we wanted to keep it as few number of people as we could in, involved. So we went with RISDIC, and uh, we opened up. And uh, about a year later, in 89, when Governor Sunland took over and there was a lot of corruption in the RISDIC and uh, credit union area, the, uh, we got closed up with the other RISDIC institutions. So... We were close for about a year, uh, and uh, I remember traveling to Washington, D.C., Bill and I taking the red eye on the train at night, meeting with then U.S. Senator Claiborne Pell and the FDIC officials, trying to uh, get FDIC insurance so we could get reopened. And uh, quite frankly, we were successful. We had to raise another $2 million to get to the $4 million of capitalization, but our loan portfolio and the business, the the Peer Bank was doing very well, and FDIC said it's a solid operation, but you need another two million capital. So we raised that again through all you local people out there, a lot of good people out there. Well, Winfield Tucker, my good friend, God bless him, Marcella Croy, uh, Kelpesh Shah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Max knows Mr. Shah. Yeah. Uh, Kelpesh, everybody came to the plate, said, Help you out, Joe. And uh, I get emotional with that. Yeah, that's okay. A lot of good people out there. They really yeah. are, Max. Yeah. So that was uh, that was another uh, another experience. And unfortunately, uh, after all the new guys came in, they kind of threw me out. They wanted a big law firm out of Providence. And ultimately, PeerBank, uh, a few of them, their goal was to sell the stock in PeerBank and make some money. And they did. They, they made a good return on their investment initially when Washington Trust bought out PeerBank. Uh, Peer Bank used to have a, well, two bank. We had two uh, locations: one in Wakefield, which is now Washington Trust, and then Washington Trust, our original one, in Bonnet Shores. Okay. Uh, so, but I moved on from there, and I just started practicing law full time, and I've been a practicing lawyer for over forty years now. Um, main areas of practice: uh, I did a lot of family court, a lot of real estate. Of course, my years' experience with the credit union and. And the bank, Peer Bank, and that gave me a, an insight on real estate, mortgages, and stuff. Uh, and uh, I moved on kind of a little bit from there, but then, then I, I got back into politics and back again in 92. 92, I ran for town council in Exeter and got elected. 
Lasted two years. Couldn't stand the local politics. <laughs> it is dirty, dirty. It's too personality driven. Really? Uh, I just, I, I said, I, I can't do this. And I, I just don't want to be local. Mm-hmm. So in 94, I, I, uh, I ran for the state house again as opposed to the council and got elected in 1994 representing the towns of Richmond, Exeter, and West Greenwich. Uh, that was from District 39 at the time. And uh, then I just, I kind of hung around the legislature, working uh, the law practice, uh, doing all of those things for the next 10, 12 years, um, trying to put in a, a golf course up in Situate. I, I represented a number of number of entities that did a lot of development, a lot of zoning, a lot of stuff in town. I did a lot of that. I kind of focused right in the town of Richmond, actually where we are today. Max rents space for me in this building. He's right mm-hmm. next to where my office originally was for mm-hmm. quite a while, uh, here on Route 138 in Richmond, Rhode Island. So I re- worked out of here. Uh, the next inter- interesting thing I got involved with, uh, even though I was still in politics uh, from 1994 to 2008, in 2005 I represented the uh, South South County Tourism Council, and uh, they had invested about 100000 into this Lighthouse Inn, which was the old Dutch Inn in, in Galilee, for you old timers, it was called the Dutch Inn. For us newer guys, it was called the Lighthouse Inn, and uh, they had invested a hundred thousand in there, trying to get more tourism activity in the Galilee, South Kingstown, Narragansett area. And unfortunately, the guys running it kind of went belly up, not belly up. Well, they originally did. They went into receivership and. Uh, I was a lawyer for the South County Tourism Council, and we finally ultimately got it converted to a bankruptcy, uh, Chapter 13, Debtor in Possession. I ran that for about a year, year and a half. Uh, I'm proud to say that uh, at the time when I took it over, the offer they had on it was 1.6. After a year, I ran it. It earned about 1.8 million, and it sold for about 4.2 million after that. So wow. Everybody got paid on that deal, mm-hmm. and it turned out very well. Uh, and actually, Mr. Shaw, again, was one of my uh, partners. We were trying to buy it, but we lost out to the big boys in Providence, the Prakashanti Group and the Joe Pialinos. We we lost out the bid to them, and, and probably the best thing I did, I understand the Lighthouse Inn is being raised right now. It's down to the ground, and they just never got it off the ground after mm-hmm. that. And then about a year, year later, in uh, 2005, uh, I was uh, approached by some guys I represented on a golf course, the Pinecrest Golf Course, the time Pinehurst Golf Course, and uh, I was approached by them, made an offer I couldn't refuse, and I kind of took over the golf course. And I've mm-hmm. been at the Pinecrest, now Pinecrest. We about three years into it, we got sued by Pinehurst in North Carolina, and uh, we resolved. I resolved that suit mm-hmm. without spending more than twenty-five thousand. But uh, we had to change the name to Pinecrest. It is now called Pinecrest Golf Course. Uh, my, it's just my wife and I are the owners now. Originally, there we had we had some interesting owners and a little interesting life. Uh, we had one partner. His name was Ross Atkins, and his actually it was him and his wife Sarah Whitehouse Atkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ross uh, and Sarah were our partners with my wife and I. And uh, the interesting part about that is that Sarah was the sister of Sheldon Whitehouse, who is now our U.S. Senator. Yeah. And Ross Ross is the grandson of Ross Barnett, who used to be the governor of Mississippi from 1960 to 1964, if you remember mm. all the 
you're too young, Max, but some of us remember the turmoil down in those states with the, you know, all of the uh, the racists and the riots and the, yeah. the racism and all the uh, the stuff going on down there, the George Wallaces and the Ross Barnetts, and and so um, it was interesting with Ross and Sarah. They were great, great. They are great people. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, they they kind of parted ways after a while and. And I ended up buying Ross, so my wife and I ended up buying Ross out and Sarah out. So now it's mm. just the wife and I. And yep. Now I just kind of semi-retired in the law practice. Uh, no more politics after 2008. Uh, I just uh, focus on the golf course and part-time law practice and uh, the family. My granddaughters, my grandkids, my mm-hmm. great-granddaughter, yep. my great-granddaughter. Yep. So. Yeah. Amazing story, honestly. When I saw that, when you sent it to me, I was like, this is amazing, and I need to get this story out to people because you're an amazing guy, and you have a a lot of cool experiences. And Pinecrest is probably the nicest nine-hole golf course in Rhode Island, if not the nicest. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it really is. I mean, listen, if anybody's into golf, and I'm actually doing an episode, so I'm recording this on Monday the 6th. I'm recording an episode tomorrow on the seventh, all about golf. Oh, good! So I'm gonna. I have some couple of guys that are coming who um, are into golf. One had a pro card for a while, 1.7 handicap. I brought him to Pinecrest. He actually had never played there before, and he loved it. Oh, good, thanks. And he, you know, he was on the green like every, uh, you know, two shots every time, even on the par five. What we call regulation. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> and he missed every single putt. He never one putted. Because the greens there are just insane and amazing. And, you know, you look at it, look straight, and nope, it goes three feet to the left and then, <laughs> and then rolls down the hill, and you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. But- well, you know, amazing part about Pinecrest is, is um, we recently, about a year ago, uh, we have two young ladies. I don't know if you've met the Yes, yeah, the I've Papa met them. girls. There's yep. uh, Vinny, Vinny and, and Jana Papa. One of them is 12 and one is 14. Mm-hmm. They're actually from uh, up in Foster. Uh, they're both scratch golfers. Yeah. They're just insane. Am- oh, amazing to watch them. They yeah. are so smooth. And they've been ranked 6th uh, and 7th in New England. Wow. For, uh, for the New England area. For Girls are under 18. I think it's under 18. Yeah. So high school and so forth. Neither one of them are in high school yet. Benny's like in 8th grade. crazy. And Jonna just went into the ninth grade. But they're yeah. just great kids. Well... Well mannered, just very, uh, very mature for their age. Yeah, well, I mean, some people just have it with golf, you know, and and it's it's different than any other sport really because you know other than like boxing, it's, it's just one person and and sometimes your caddy and uh, if if you're lucky enough to play with one, but it's it's a it's a very mental sport and uh, I love it. I just got fitted for clubs yesterday for a Christmas gift. Business must be good, huh? Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, it was a Christmas gift. I started to say Christmas is coming. Maybe yeah. mom and dad will help. Well, they, yeah, I'm, you know, I've, I'm going to pay for more than half of it. Let's say that. Okay. Well, they had to pay for their camper now. So, yes. You know, mom and dad's the, yes. got the new camper. I'm sure my mother told you all about that. Oh, I saw pictures. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. She can't wait to travel. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. it's going to be awesome. Um, yeah, good. But, uh, yeah, I got Mizuno JPX Hot Metals. Oh. Yeah. So, and, and I got fitted up in Golf Galaxy in Warwick, oh, up okay. in the big city. Is that right on, on uh, Route 2 there? Uh, it's where Sports 30 used to be in yeah, Warwick yeah, Mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but I had... Um, they had um, a track band in there and everything, and I was like, it was, it was incredible. It was <laughs> really cool experience to, you know, all those different things that go into a golf swing. And, and, you know, it seems like 
something where it's just uh, a scheme to make money. But when they start giving you reasoning, and if you really want to get to scratch golfer level, you need to know those things oh, sure. and 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 yeah. get into it. And you know, I most of the time I thought like, oh, you know, a five dollar ball, like that's just a way to steal money from you. When really, you know, the softer balls, you get more spin on them, and and better players want more spin around the greens. You know, they like to have it spin back, spin sideways. You know, and it's really interesting. But we'll be talking more about that tomorrow. Tomorrow, huh? tomorrow. Good, good, good. So. Um, I want to go through a few things, you know, like you mentioned before, and ask you questions. Sure. So first of all, I'd like to talk about your time as a politician. Mm. So originally you ran in 76? 76. Okay. Actually, the first time I ran is, was in 74. Uh, and the interesting how I got in there, it was in, in 1972 I started at the University of Rhode Island. And mm-hmm. uh, my mother-in-law was a – she worked for the Department of Health, and she was – very instrumental in me getting involved in politics, and she knew I wanted to go to law school and so forth. So she kind of said, maybe it's a, a good idea to get a little experience, you know, in politics. So at the time, Joe Gary, he was the governor, and she had known Joe for a while. So she called him, and he got me in as a intern. He got me an internship in the legislature, and mm-hmm. actually, the gentleman I interned for, a good friend of mine, a fellow lawyer, Jimmy Orkerman, out of South Kingstown here. And I was interning for Jimmy Orkerman, and and, uh, and he they were redistricting. As you said earlier, we were discussing the districts and so forth. They were redistricting at that time, and they were creating uh, a new district, part of Exeter and South Kingstown, which was outside of Jimmy Orkerman's district in South Kingstown. So Jimmy said, Joe, this would... Even though I'd only been in the state a year, I couldn't couldn't imagine, you know, running for the General Assembly legislature. It was just like, you got to be kidding. I'm 23 mm. years old, you know? Yeah. So I, uh, I'll never forget, uh, Jimmy says, you should take a look at that new district there. So I, I made the call. Uh, I was a Democrat, quite frankly. I grew up in Cincinnati and Ohio as a pretty much a Kennedy Democrat. My mother and father were Kennedy Democrats, and, and I grew up with obviously most kids do that back in those days you you grow up with whatever your parents affiliation is mm-hmm. so i grew up a pretty much a kennedy democrat so uh, when Ms., when jimmy Ackerman said joe you should take a look at at being the state rep running for the state rep so i as naturally i called the democratic chairman in exeter charlie allen was his name allen seed store up there charlie allen I'll never forget Charlie. I walk in there and I said, uh, Mr. Allen, my name's Joe Scott and I'm interested in running for the state rep seat. He said, we don't need no young fella to, from Cincinnati running here. He says, great guy, yeah. Charlie yeah. Allen. Oh, I'll never forget. I love, yeah. I love his family. Greg Allen, uh, Guppy Allen, they're all good friends of mine. Yeah. Diane Allen still works at the seat store uh, and we do business with Allen Seat Store quite a bit because of the golf course. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'll never forget that day. But interesting enough about Less than a week later, I get a call from the Republican town chairman, uh, Son Whitford at the time, uh, uh, and he says, uh, I heard you're interested in running for, for politics. I say, yeah. He says, well, we already got a guy running for the rep seat, he says, and it was Cy Saravo who used to own, own the um, uh, SNS, not SNS, the uh, Belmont supermarket. Okay. Day, Belmont. Yeah, yeah. And his family still does. And they said, we got a guy running for that, but uh, if you want to run for council... You know, we'll, we'll put you on the ticket. So, yeah, why not? So uh, I ran for council that year, and uh, it was quite a learning experience. Uh, mm-hmm. I, quite frankly, I was I was tending bar at, at the corner, uh, cover wagon up in Exeter, and Chico Kotako and his family were big supporters of mine. But I lost the first election by 34 votes. 
So it was a good experience. So two years later, uh, I forget the guy's name. I forget his name now, but um, uh, Clem Doyle was his name. Clem Doyle beat Cy Saravo for the house seat. So they came to me, and uh, they I think they were just trying to make me the sacrificial lamb and said, uh, you want to run for the house seat now? Uh, yeah. They said, okay, we'll support you. You can run against the incumbent, who's a Democrat. And I said, well, there's one thing, because last election – you told me I couldn't campaign on my own because we ran as a group. I said, I'm campaigning on my own if I you know, go for it. Go, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, uh, interesting enough, that election, I beat the guy by 500-something votes. Wow. I mean, uh, my mother-in-law drove me around all over Exeter, all over South Kingstown. We went into houses, long driveways, and I think people were just amazed that, you know, we took the time, and mm -hmm. we got out there, and I, I won that one by 500 votes against and the incumbent. And that's huge. That was huge. In a small town. Well, what's huge is the district. They call it the Ponderosa District yeah. because, as you know, South Kingstown's the number one largest in the state and Exeter's number three so Coventry fits in there number two mm -hmm. so I had two out of the three large it was just a Ponderosa district and I won that one pretty good by 500 votes and then I um, I, I decided to uh, run again two years later and I ran against a gentleman named John Hamilton great kid an accountant married into the family in Charlestown uh, if you know where the Willows is down there in Charlestown mm -hmm. the, Duhamel family. His wife was a Duhamel. John was John was a great, a very formidable opponent. I only beat John by 23, 24 votes. It's wow. that close. Wow. And so I got reelected again in 70, 76. Uh, and um, 1980 uh, came around, and and uh, they needed somebody to run for the, the Senate seat, or we thought we did. And so everybody in South Kingstown, Exeter, and Richmond are all kind of pushing me to run for the Senate seat. So I decided to run for the Senate seat because I was now running the uh, Richmond House Pub, which was over on Route 3 in Richmond. It was old Joe Colazzi's Red Cedar Inn. I had bought that with Bill Senator O'Neill, and I was running the pub. So I, uh, I decided to seek the nomination for that, and, um, and I didn't get the endorsement. Uh, a gentleman out of South, um, Hoppington got it, Lloyd Cook. Uh, here's another incident. I went down to see, uh, it was down to Shannock Spa. Some of you don't know, but remember the Shannock Spa. It's in, now the post office, quite frankly, in Shannock. <laughs> it was the Shannock Spa, which was owned by a gentleman named Kyle Richard. And uh, Kyle, uh, uh, Kyle Richard was on the Senatorial District Committee. So I went, I went down there and sat at, at there and had a hamburger at his joint trying to talk to him. And he told me the same thing old Charlie Allen told me. I don't need no kid from Cincinnati. <laughs> so I, I, I ran into a lot of Swamp Yankees down here. Yeah. Of course, I'm a hillbilly, too, so I can appreciate <laughs> that. But uh, that's how I got involved in politics yeah. initially. You know? Yeah. So w when you ran, were there any, like, pressing issues that you thought, you know, I want to change that? Well, you know, the, the, the thing about politics is people. some people – they, they take an issue and, and they run with it, and I'm not sure it's, it's so much in their heart that they're doing it, uh, that they have the feel for the, that. They, they do it sometimes because it's, it's generating a lot of publicity, attention, mm -hmm. you know? And I was never, uh, I always prided myself. Uh, somebody said, well, when I retired finally after all those years, what's your biggest accomplishment? I said, I didn't put any legislation in, you know? <laughs> because 
I always was of the opinion that there was too much. And as a lawyer, I still think there's too much. Yeah. You know, it, you know, you can put in all the bills you want, but you can't, you just can't, uh, you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate common sense. You can't legislate character. You know, those are the things that we need to build on in society. You know, you, you are just a shining example. Oh. And I, I seriously mean that. I've, Thank you. I've known you since you were about 14 years old and, I, I tell you, you are just a shining example of a kid that's matured and, and character. I, Thank you're just, you. You're just great. And, you know, we need to get that, you know, and I give your mother and father credit all the time for that. I tell them that. I tell your mother that all the time, <laughs> you know. But that's what we need, I think, more in this country, especially now with a huge divide in this country. But I guess if you said my biggest accomplishment, uh, I remember the Charaho school system, which was struggling financially. Um, they, uh, they wanted constantly wanted to improve the facilities over to the, the Charaho, uh, uh, campus, if you will. And because it, it was structured with Richmond, Charlestown and Hoppington, Charaho, if you will, Hoppington, Charlestown and Richmond, you always had that conflicting, especially between Hoppington and Charlestown, you know, they didn't, they didn't seemed to want to get together because Charlestown's a much wealthier community, didn't have as many students. It was just an issue always there. So they every time they, they could bring up the they brought up a bond issue or something to, to spend, you get the you know, Councilman Hoppington would vote against it, Richmond would vote for it, Charlestown for it. If it favored Hoppington, Charlestown would vote against it. It was a lot of struggle there, which was a, a pretty much a local issue. And I'll never forget when um, John Peeney was was there, and John approached me on, on trying to help him out with the bond, and, and ultimately John retired. And the next year, I, I'm trying to think of the superintendent that came in there, great guy. He came to me, and he um, he wanted they all wanted to know if I would sponsor. I was a Republican. Uh, Donna Walsh, who was a Democrat from Charlestown, didn't yep. want to sponsor it. Brian Kennedy, who was the Democrat from Hoppington, didn't want to sponsor it because yep. they— they didn't want to get in the middle of that. Of course, here I'm the Republican in Richmond. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, I said, sure, I'll sponsor it. I, I don't know how successful it's going to be. Well, interesting enough, uh, you know, Brian and Donna uh, were willing to back off on, on opposing it, per se, and said, Joe, if you can get the Finance Committee to go with it, we'll go with it. It was $100 million. It was mm -hmm. the biggest bond issue ever submitted in this state of Rhode Island. Wow. So I submitted the bond issue, and... And uh, I have to give a lot of credit to my good friend, Kenny Carter, who was on the finance committee. Kenny was vice chair on finance. Kenny and I had been friends for 20-something years. Uh, and um, my good friend, Kenny Carter, said, Joe, put it in, and I'll, I'll make sure we get your hearings, and we'll see where it goes. Well, fortunately for me, Brian Kennedy and, and Donna Walsh, they submitted the resolutions from their various school uh, town and school committee uh, not school committee, because school committee was all in favor of it. But Hoppington opposed it. Charlestown wanted it. Richmond wanted it. So, you know, they gave their thing about their councils and this and that. But unlike a lot of times where the legislature always goes with votes of the council, trying to vote, they, they gave me the red light, I mean green light. And uh, we, got it, we got it passed. And I think that's been one of the reasons that the Charaho campus and the Charaho school is now probably in the top four or five in the state. Well, it was number three, I think, yeah. my junior year. And, and I think it's due to the 
that hundred million dollar they put in there, the facilities, the you know, the the dedication that those teachers and the people put in over there. Mm -hmm. But they needed they needed the facility to to kind of put it together. And I, they've done a great job over there. I'm very proud to see I put that bond in. Wow. So there's been a couple well, of big thank ones you. now. Because <laughs> because without Cheraho and the Career and Technical Center there. I wouldn't be into 3D printing, and this business would have never existed. There you go. And um, that whole program is amazing. Uh, so it's really, really cool. And, I mean, yeah, I love Cheraho, and I really miss it, honestly. And they're, and they're building the Maddie Potts Fieldhouse there now. Oh, yes. Which is very interesting. Great. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping I can find a time to get uh, Mr. and Mrs. Potts on, Stephanie and Dan, who are amazing people. And, um, yeah, that's another future episode. We're going to talk about the importance of sports oh, in schools. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But um, so let's see here. Oh, so I wanted to ask you, so back when you ran, what was a split in the House for Democrat and Republican? Because right now it's like, I think it's like there's only eight Republicans. I'm not sure what it was. Now there there are, in the House, there are only 75 members in yeah. the House. Yeah, When I first ran... Uh, in, in 19, well, 1975, there were 100 members in the House, mm -hmm. and there were 14 of us Republicans, uh, and um, the rest, obviously, 61 Democrats, I mean, uh, 81 Democrats or something, okay. I think what it was. Yeah. But then again, uh, when I ran back, uh, when I got elected in 94, uh, there were actually 22, 23 Republicans and, and about 70-something Democrats, so it's always been... It's always been three to one, four to one. It's always been. Even mm -hmm. when we when we went to seventy five, I think the most we we had up there was like twenty something. Yeah, um, it was never. It was always three to one. Yeah, it's a heavy, heavy Democrat. Uh, mainly because uh, when when you because it's done by population. Obviously, the, uh, the inner city and you know your areas like Providence, Pawtucket, uh, you know those areas up there which have half the population, if you will, in the state of Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. Uh, you get down here, and Exer has one rep, you know, one senator, you know, but um, you get up there, and they, Pawtucket, probably between Pawtucket and Providence, they probably have 20, 25 uh, state reps or something, and counting Warwick, Cranston, you know. Just like the, the governor's race, it's it's pretty much a Republican can win the outlying communities out of 39 cities and towns. You could win 36 of them, but if you don't win Pawtucket, Providence, Warwick, Cranston, you're going to lose them. You're going to yeah. lose because they have 10 times the votes. Yeah. yeah. Well, Blake Philippi, when he came on, he talked about ranked choice voting. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No, so I'm basically not. it's, it's already in place in Maine and it's really simple. You have your top three candidates. So let's say Blake's running, Dan McKee's running and, uh, who's that Seth Magaziner, right? Those are these three people running. Um, and for example, I want Blake to be, this is just an example. I'm not saying <laughs> Blake's my number one, Dan's my number two, and number three is Seth. And basically, if you know, doesn't look like Blake's gonna win, my vote then goes to Dan McKee. So it's ranked choice. And then if Dan McKee is not gonna win, then my vote goes to Seth Magaziner. So it, it's 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 really interesting. And in Maine, they used it and got the most liberal um, governor they've ever had. Uh, so we'll see how interesting that race is going to be next year. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think it's going to help 
the minority party and the Republicans a lot in the future. Um, but we'll see. Blake, unfortunately, said that he's not running for governor. Um, <laughs> even though on this podcast he said he was looking into it, but he just announced it oh, the other yeah. day. So Yeah, it's um, tough down in these outlying communities. Yeah. You compete even, you know, with, with the areas like Providence or Pawtucket or Warwick or Cranston. Yeah. 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 But uh, so way, you know, when you were running, what was the, uh, you know, biggest like difference between you think modern, the politics back then and modern politics now? Oh, tremendous difference. Yeah. Tremendous difference. You know, what I think is, is happened with, with politicians or politics these days is, is the, you know, when I ran, in, when I ran for office, I always, I always treated it as if I was running uh, as a gentleman, uh, you know, running to, to better my, you know, better my community, provide, I always just said, I'll just provide what expertise I had. And I always thought I had quite a bit of expertise in different areas and so forth. Nowadays, uh, I, I hate to say it, but a, a lot of them, it is, it appears to be all about uh, power and ego. You know, they, they, they want the power. Uh, and years ago, people, people ran. Uh, you know, they, they, they let their character decide what was good and bad. Now, a lot of people don't really care about the character anymore. They just, you know, they're they're saying what is best or what gets them the most publicity. It's sort and, of like blind loyalty to the party. No question. Well, on interesting, side. interesting enough, I, after I got out in 2008, I look at my, my own, if you want to call it ignorance or lack of keeping informed. I, I'm not, I don't keep too informed on the local or uh, more. I do on a local, but not on the state level per se. Uh, I find my interest is more generated towards national politics, you know, the, the presidency and, and uh, the Congress and so forth in terms of what impacts me the most. I mean, a lot of your state legislation doesn't necessarily impact a, a, small, um, a small business guy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Most of it is, is on the, the larger scale coming out of Congress up there, the, you know, the taxation uh, the interstate commerce, the different rules and regulations and so forth. So I, I find today that a lot of politicians uh, really aren't there to be the, the you know, the, the gentleman or the, the what do I want to say? Uh, I always, ah, I'm losing the word I want, but I'll think of it in a minute. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I want to move off of your time as a politician. And I'm, I'm really interested to talk about your career and being involved with banks. Because I've never interviewed anybody who has owned a bank or been a, a large part of a bank before. So, um, so Peer Bank was your second bank that you were associated with, right? Yes. And you partnered with fifteen other people. There were around, yeah. What yeah. Peer Bank was a, a creation. Uh, what happened was Bill O'Neill's U.S. I mean, State Senator Bill O'Neill and I became good friends back in the back in the seventies. My first term of office there, we were at URI registering registering students to vote we mm-hmm. were sitting there registering students to vote and bill uh, what do you do joe and i said well i'm in law school and i attend bar in newport uh, oh yeah he used to own sweet meadows in in narragansett down which is now where washington trust is down he used to own sweet meadows with salty brian now you're probably too young to remember salty brian but yeah. some of our older your older audience would remember salty brian so bill had just sold sweet meadows and and uh, and he says, well, he says, I, I like the restaurant business. He says, what, what are you involved in? I was partners with Newport and Newport and Courtney's on Long Wharf. I ran Jimmy's Saloon on Memorial Boulevard. 
Uh, and so at that time, there was this place in Richmond called, it was Red Cedar Inn, had been closed up for quite a while. And I'd been looking at it, looking at it. It was, it was five and a half acres of land, a building. It was an old, old restaurant along Route 3, which before 95 came in was the primary highway in, in that. So at that time, I, I told Bill, I said, yeah, I'm looking at a place. He said, how about if I fund it for you? Let's go together. So Bill came over, and Bill ended up being the financial guy, and mm -hmm. we opened the, the Richmond House Pub at that time, we called it. So Bill and I got to be very close friends, and, and at that time, I was still running the credit. I ran the credit from 80 to 85, as I said. So when I left there in 85, I, uh, I started practicing law. Of course, Bill and I still were good friends. We still had the restaurant, and I've sold it four or five times, quite frankly, hold the financing and get it back because people don't understand when you go into business like you do you're in business and i drive by this building every day and i see your car here at six in the morning and eight o'clock at night business you marry the business you yeah. know people don't understand the the what the mom and pop businesses do these days and especially now now especially yeah. you you live there and it's your life it's not you make enough to live off of or you make enough to survive i always say but you're not gonna you're not gonna get rich like the good year or the you know the white houses or you know the old days when all these people went into steel and all this and they got rich it just doesn't happen anymore if you're if you're a successful small business guy basically what that means is you're able to support and feed your family without you know without too much difficulty yeah but, but anyway bill uh bill and i uh, stayed friends and then in 1987-88, uh, Old Stone Bank, I don't know if you remember Old Stone Bank, which used to be a, it was an SNL, Savings and Loan. Savings and Loans were kind of going by the wayside, um, and there was an Old Stone Bank building in Bonnet Shores on, on Route 1 over there, and Bill was buying it. So he came to me and he said, what do you think, Joe? Think we can open up a bank? And I said, ooh, I, um, I don't know, I don't know, you know why not? He said, well, you know all the guys up the banking division, which I did from the years in the credit union. You know, at that time, Ed Blue was banking commissioner. Al Manfredi was assistant banking commissioner. So Bill says, let's, let's look at getting a, uh, a bank charter and I'll buy the building, and we'll open up a small commercial bank in Old Stone. So it uh, sounded great to me. So uh, I started putting everything together and, and met with the banking people up there. And here again, this is, is one of the, realities of life if you will especially in small states uh i went to ed blue and then al my friend what am i going to do to get a, a bank charter well first of all joe you got to hire one of the major law firms edwards and angels or tilling has collins and graham or partridge so and high i said oh i can't well you're a small attorney in richmond you know mm -hmm. uh, so who do we look i went to bill i said they say we need a, a, a major law firm well jack reed Jack Reed is oh, Jack Reed yeah. works for Edwards and Angels, and he's a state senator. Mm -hmm. So we called Jack and met with Jack. Bill and I met with Jack, and and uh, I did all the prospectus, I did all the performers, I did all the paperwork, and I gave it to Jack. And I went with Jack. Jack and I went up to the board of bank incorporators, and we sat there and we answered all their questions. You know, I prepared the performance, so Jack was kind of the front man from Edwards and Angel, and. Uh, I answered all the questions, and uh, lo and behold, we got approval for a commercial bank charter. And uh, next step, obviously, was getting the FDIC insurance. People really are a little bit confused about banking. Interesting banking, people think, you know, if you have cash, if you have cash in the bank yourself, uh, they think that that's an asset. 
it is an asset for you personally. But from a bank perspective, the deposits are a liability. In other words, if you put your money into my bank, Peer Bank, you deposit $100,000, I owe you that money. Mm-hmm. So it's a liability for me as the banker. My assets are the loans. I take your 100000 and I, lo- I loan it over here to John Smith. Now, John Smith's loan is an asset to me because I own that loan and hold that loan. But I funded that loan with, with your deposit. And that was the theory behind, originally the theory behind SNLs, and it really is the theory behind all banking per se. Banking is just the opposite from an accounting perspective. Money, cash, deposits are liabilities, loans, debts, if you will. They are assets. So we, we opened up, we got PeerBank started. We raised $20 million, uh, $2 million, I'm sorry. And that was, I can, uh, Bill was the largest shareholder. I was the second largest shareholder. Then we had Tony Fiore. Uh, oh, my gosh, I'm trying to think. Joe, Joe Mariner. Uh, the original group was was an interesting group. Joe Joe Gary, he was in there, but Joe, I think Joe put in about ten or fifteen thousand. He was he was more in name than anything. It gave mm-hmm. us more credibility. Mm-hmm. Gave the bank more credibility as opposed to. So there were about fifteen of us, I think, initially, uh, and we uh, we opened up the old stone bank building down in in Bonnet Shores, and we were functioning and operating very good. Uh, we're becoming very profitable. We were until the RISC crisis hit and. Uh, Banking is, is a, um, it, 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 they have a product, a product that is easy to market, you know, mm-hmm. a product is cash, money, everybody's out there, you know, everybody's trying to get money, you know, and, and what's happened in the banking industry, it's sad because when I ran the credit union, I remember if I could do two or 300 basis points, which in the banking industry, that meant if I was paying you two and a half, three percent for your money. I would mark it up to 300 basis points, which would make it, I was loaning it to somebody for 6%, you know? And that was a pretty good spread, three, three and a half. Now, I mean, the banks now are, they're, I don't think many of them are going, they want to get at least seven, six, seven percent spread, especially when you're dealing with credit cards. Absolutely crazy, you know? I don't know of any credit cards under 12, 13, 14%. Yeah. And the cost of funds for most banks these days, um, if they're paying one and a half, two, they're lucky. Uh, and even in the banking industry, a lot of people, biggest thing I had at Charo, I got to tell you, was interesting, I learned, was we had what they call DDA accounts, demand deposit accounts, which was checking accounts. And checking accounts, the money in the checking account, there always was an average balance in that account of somewhere around two fifty, three hundred thousand. 300,000. And what we did every night is we would call the Federal Reserve and we would roll those monies overnight. You would just, you invested overnight and I'm not paying you any anything for your, in that float money. It's called float. Mm-hmm. I'm not paying you anything for it. That's zero cost. So I'm investing it every night overnight and, and back in the 80s, we were getting five, six, seven percent. So if you did it every night and you had 200,000, imagine that over the year, what that 200,000 is, is earning you at five or six percent, you know? It's doing some pretty good return. Mm-hmm. And we were small. But now you look at some of these banks. Some of these banks that, um, well, even like Washington Trust, probably, I would say Washington Trust probably has somewhere about 20, 30 million in float yeah. within their checking account. Mm-hmm. So, And they probably roll that into the overnight Fed funds. 
because uh, the Federal Reserve, they have these, you just wire it in, not wire it in, you just call it in. Yeah. Uh, you can move the mic a little bit closer. Oh. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, it was really interesting. I wanted to ask you, like, basically how you started the bank, but you answered that question already. And uh, I've always been fascinated with, you know, how long and how detailed that process really must be because you're responsible for people's livelihood and I I don't think I'd ever uh, feel comfortable doing that. <laughs> well, it's interesting when I when I started and I you have basically two documents that you're looking at. One is is the performers which tells you what you're projecting the success of the bank is, how mm -hmm. well it's going to perform. And then you have the prospectus. The prospectus is basically a lot of people look at when they're buying stock these days. You want to know what that, you know, the stock, how you're evaluating or valuing the stock and so forth. So uh, that was a that was a long, tedious thing I did. And I'm, I looked at other other uh, performers that had been submitted. And, and I tell you, as a side note, when Washington Trust opened up the Sweet Meadows branch of Washington Trust, I'll never forget. They called me from from uh, the banking thing. It was Alma and Freddie or. I, I think it was Al called me. He said, Joe, did you help Washington Trust do their performers and prospectus? I said, no, why? He says, they're identical to yours. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I get the sense that yeah. like I did, you know, I took, you look at other ones and you try to blend it into what you need to, to put yours at. And based on ours was the $2 million capitalization. And, and uh, we, we put the stock at $6 a share initially to show, you know, how we could try to, you know, earn more, and so forth. Mm -hmm. and, um, so yeah, it was interesting. So when did Pier Bank get bought out? Because first, or because some reason I remember a logo. Is it was it like a light, like blue with like a lighthouse or something? Green. Green. It was okay. green. We so were Pier Bank with green. Yeah. I still have some of the old signs in my. <laughs> oh really? In my garage. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Well, what happened was when we got opened back up with FDIC insurance, um, and we raised the four million, we raised two more million dollars. Bill O'Neill, I kind of got kicked to the curb, you know. It's like everybody is now wanting, you know, this one wanted a position on the board, this one wanted this, this one wanted that. So, uh, unfortunately, um, Bill and I kind of got kicked to the curb. Wow. Be, be, you know, even though we did that year was a tough, tough year. But, uh, you know, what you learn is money is uh, it's an evil thing. Money is an evil thing, and, and people do crazy things to get money, mm -hmm. you know. And... What we learned, I learned, and Bill and I both learned it, is that you know, these, these people, they, their goals were different than ours. Bill and I wanted a truly local bank. I would, I would have loved to see that bank succeed for 100 years, kind of like Washington Trust, but I, Washington Trust has gotten too big in my opinion. Yeah, you know? they've gone up in New Hampshire. Yeah, and they're all over. Yeah. And so we, Bill and I's, our goal initially was a, a nice local bank. We serviced the local community, kind of like credit unions initially were geared to do. A credit union was geared to stay local. You know, the local people put their money in there, and then you loan their money out to other local people. Mm -hmm. So it was a facility for that purpose. And that's what Bill and I, I, I know we both had the same thoughts uh, of just that. And then after we got the other two million and new board members came on and, and we quickly learned that their goal was to try to make the stock worth more so they could sell it. One thing they did, I don't know if you have ever puts or warrants, uh, the board voted to authorize certain people to buy a warrant, which means you pay a quarter for a stock 
to hold that price. So they were paying quarters and they were holding the price. Then the stock was at, at four, $5, I think it was. So when it was talked about going to Washington Trust buying us out, mm -hmm. they gobbled up those $5 stocks so they could sell it at 7 and $8. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was another learning experience for me. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's one of those things, again, like politics has evolved in. It's all about money and power. Mm. You know, and you just, you just, I don't know. I just never got into the money or power. I'm yeah. happy. I'm the little country kid from Butcher Holler, Kentucky, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so now I want to move on to uh, Pinecrest. Uh, I love that place. I'll say it again. I love it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, and they had very clean golf carts when I worked there, and they still do. <laughs> hey, Max. Max yeah. is one of my good golf cleaners, yes. cart cleaners. Yeah. Him and his sister, Lucy. They yep. did a great job. Yep. yep. Um, so... What made you want to invest in, in Pinecrest originally? Well, it's an interesting situation. Again, one thing leads to another. Uh, I had just come off the uh, running the lighthouse in in Galilee and been very successful down there. And I was a little upset that when when it finally went to auction or sold, that Mr. Shaw and I didn't get it. We were mm -hmm. very upset about that. We We had done a lot of work there, putting it back together and felt that know we should have at least an option on it but we end up losing a couple hundred thousand on that deal quite frankly because as part of the arrangements for debtor in possession we had to put up the 200 but mm -hmm. well anyway i bit the bullet on that and then mr shaw and i went on to a, another project and that was in situate rhode island where um, i had 180 something acres along with another partner of mine and we didn't have enough frontage to put in a road for to build 35 house lots so we kept trying to figure alternative use for this property, which I bought the property in 89 at a reasonable price. Uh, long story short, we uh, we finally got some frontage, but we decided to go with a golf course. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of opposition. We spent a year and a half getting the special use permit and all the permits for the golf course. We actually cut the trees. You, I've got a plan that shows the, the actual uh, holes designed and everything. And after we went through a year and a half of that, uh, we're getting ready to start construction. We go to the town and, and situate, and, uh, who fought us the whole way. The whole town fought us, pretty much. And uh, I said, well, we want to apply for a liquor license and a clubhouse. They said, nah, we're not going to give you a liquor license. No clubhouse either. Put a, put a trailer up there in a hot dog stand. <laughs> you know? You're going to fund a $5 million build, a $5 million golf course, and hope that a hot dog stand is going to help you pay the nut? It ain't going to happen. It's not going to mm -hmm. happen. So after that, we kind of backed off on that a little bit, and then we, we sought the route of going to five, 35 house lots because we now had bought one lot that we could have enough frontage for, uh, even though there was one of the one of the guys up there tried every, tried his best to get us keep us from getting enough frontage. We finally got it, and we started going towards the 35 house lots. Well, again, I was, as an attorney, I represented the partnership or the group there were three guys who started uh, Pinecrest. I was their attorney. We got it through the town. We got the special use permits and so forth. And they were operating, the three of them. Uh, but they, they, they spent a lot of money. They way overspent on the course. Mm -hmm. And uh, after about two years, uh, it became apparent that none of them knew how to operate the golf course, that none of them were business that type of retail business per se. One of them was great in the construction industry, but when it comes to that type of operation. So they approached me and offered me uh, a situation where one of them would step aside if uh, if they gave me that interest. So 
Quite frankly, in 2005, uh, I was given a, a third interest, uh, not a third, 16.5% interest in Pinecrest if I came in and, and ran it. And I had to run it for the first two years for no pay. Um, and it was a struggle. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. And uh, fortunately, uh, after the first couple of years, um, they were still putting money in. They had to put a lot of money in. Ross and Sarah had the money, quite frankly, and they were putting in quite a bit of money. But after the second year I was there, I was able to not ask them for any money. And uh, then one of the partners, he now owns Rose Hill, mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy Manning. Uh, Jimmy offered me his interest, which and, and Ross and Sarah offered me enough interest to where I would own half the golf course. So, and I didn't pay him anything for it. They just kind of gave me that interest. Wow. Well, because I, I bail them out. Otherwise, they, you know, when I came in there, they were all standing. They had co-signed. I don't know if you know what a co-maker is. Yeah. They co-signed notes for almost three million dollars, and there's just no way that places you sink if it if it j just shut the doors tomorrow, they would have lost two million. They'd had to, they'd had to come to the plate to cover the two million. Wow. So Jimmy was just happy to get out of there. Ross wanted to try to stay in, and he did stay in for a while because he had he had the way to help out some money. But so uh, that's how I got involved in there, and, and I've, it's been oh five. I'm what am I? My sixteenth year, mm -hmm. and thank goodness for uh, I've, I've had some great help. You and your sister, your mother works for us now in part time. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had some great help. My my daughter helps me run the place. Heather's amazing. And, yep, She's she does amazing. a great job. She's there. She teaches all winter mostly, and in the summer she yep. comes over and helps me at the golf course. And she's she's been there since I took over. Yeah. And uh, then I've got my two granddaughters now, or uh, well, one of them's working for me, and then, of course uh, I've got uh, my good friend Debbie Arnold. Uh, she's a, been a great help. She's been with me twenty something years. She was at the lighthouse Inn working yeah. with me. Yeah. Deb. Yep. Deb's a tough cookie. She's yeah. the best though. She really she is, is honest, hardworking. Yep. Just you know, sincere. She'll tell you. She'll tell you like it is too. <laughs> she totally will. Yep. She doesn't mix words. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, she doesn't. Deb's been a great help, a great friend for years. Yeah. And um, it's 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 been a tough struggle. Um, my office as an attorney is upstairs. Uh, obviously, it's I didn't need the money from the golf course per se to survive. My wife was a nursing administrator for. She was an in nursing supervisor at at, New, at Kent County Hospital, forty eight years. Wow. So she had a pretty good position, and between my law office and and her income, we didn't really need income from the golf course. So we were able to go 10, 15 years uh, without really taking anything out of there. And she just recently retired uh, last uh, March, uh, so that took a real hit in our income. So now I gotta. I gotta take some money out of here. I gotta take some pay. Well, you deserve you know? it. You deserve it. <laughs> I gotta that take place, some pay out. So you know, and and was so Rose Hill and Pinecrest were sort of built together, right? Rose so, Hill was built about yeah. two years before. Okay, yeah. so Rose Hill, for those of you that don't know, is a par three golf course in South Kingstown. Very similar, I think, in like the green yeah. quality. The greens are very similar, but obviously the par three and Pinecrest isn't. It you know has a par five and a few par fours and it's regulation nine. Yeah, 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 it's amazing. I wish there were nine more holes. I would, <laughs> I would never leave. <laughs> no, I, honestly, I, I nine holes is plenty. Yeah. The way uh, as business is and the way it's uh, uncertainties today, uh, you know, I wouldn't want have to worry about eighteen holes. Yeah. Right now. In fact, just from that perspective, I understand that uh, uh, Elmridge and and 
in uh, Connecticut. Yeah. Who has 27 That's goals. crazy. I think they're going back to 18. Yeah, well, I mean, when you have that many holes, it's tough to keep keep them in good shape because yeah. I played there – I played there when yeah. that that golf tournament that we had for the I don't know Pinecrest and Elmridge or whatever, and it really wasn't in great shape. But I mean the layout, I love the layout. Yeah, beautiful. It, layout. it is a great layout. But I mean when you have that many holes, it's difficult, especially right now with a labor shortage, yeah. to keep everything, you know, like Pinecrest. You know, well, I'm fortunate. I have uh, actually two very good people out there. Chris Costa, who is the superintendent, has has been there since day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's his, it's his course. It's his reputation. I can't take any credit for the course outside, other than I, I let him spend whatever money he wants. I never hold back on the purse strings. Spends what's necessary, so it keeps in good shape. Mm-hmm. You learn when you go into business, and and I've owned I don't know how many restaurants I've owned. I always told people, you know, you got to keep the price of the stuff reasonable, but at the same time, it's got to be quality. You know, if I buy a roast beef sandwich somewhere and I get all gristle. I don't care what I paid for. I'm not going back. Yeah. I don't care if I paid a dollar for it. But if you give me a roast beef sandwich that tastes like a prime rib, you know, piece of meat on there, I don't care what I paid for. Ten dollars, fine. Mm-hmm. It's good. Yeah. You know, we're all kind of. That's that's the reality of business. You have to you have to you can't just think you're going to steal stuff from people. Mm. You gotta you gotta give them something for the dollar. Yeah. You know? Well, and I talk about marketing a lot on this podcast, and I think um, when it comes to word of mouth, you know, golf is probably the type of business that benefits the most from that. Because you guys are tucked away off of 112, really in the middle of nowhere, Richmond, and it's packed every weekend pretty much in the summer. And, you know, I make sure to tell everybody to go to Pinecrest. It's amazing. You'll love it. And uh, do you think that word of mouth is the best type of marketing you've had? Well, there's no question in the last 10 years it has been. Yeah. The first five years when I first took over, I mean, it was, it was you, you're absolutely right, it was virtually unknown. Yeah. And uh, in terms of trying to figure out what to do uh, at a most reasonable cost to, to get people in the numbers there, the first thing I did was I, I, I ran a $5 coupon on the back of the register receipt at Stop and Shop in Wakefield, Nar- or in Narragansett, I should say, Westerly and Hope Valley here. Biggest return. I would get 60, 70 of them a day. Wow. Well, you, you know what's interesting? And you, here again, you have to identify your market. And, and I appreciate this free advertisement here. Uh, no, Max. listen, listen. It's the least <laughs> I can do for what you've done for me, Joe. But you have to identify your market. And the reality is, uh, you know, Pinecrest is not a Meadowbrook. Meadowbrook, if you want to go a challenging pro professional yeah. course, Meadowbrook has the big greens. It yeah. has the black tees. You know, every every hole is long enough that you're going to have to use driver three yeah. wood. Well, they, 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 that's a course, for those of you who don't know, is in Richmond, right off of 112. was built to be like a PGA course, that's really. That's exactly right. And they renovated it, what, like 10, 15 years ago? About, about 10 years ago. And yeah. it's over, it's 7,200 yards from the tips, you know, for from like the greens, which is like... I think it's like 6,400, but it's a long 6,400 yards. It's not like anywhere else. Um, and the greens are still slower than Pinecrest, and I think Pinecrest <laughs> is better. So. Well, well, interesting, but you asked me about marketing. So so I, I looked at the, the situation with Pinecrest and, and tried to identify my market. Mm-hmm. And my market is, quite frankly, elderly and women. You know, you don't see the women market per se – 
or the elderly market at, at Meadowbrook. You'll see them at Richmond, Exeter, because they're more reasonable. But my market I identified is going to be the elderly and women. One one reasonable one good thought about that is is they're the ones that can actually play through the weekdays sometimes. You know, you can't rely on that Saturday and Sunday. Like you said, it's packed on Saturday and Sunday. Most courses are. Mm -hmm. But you need that you need to try to you need to get that that people there. And who keeps the coupons on the back of the register receipt? <laughs> not Ma not Max, Certainly not Max not. Willett. No. <laughs> He's no. not looking at him. No. But you got you got the women that go shopping. They're going to read the back of that register receipt. Oh, there's a coupon on there. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't tell you the number of men that do the same thing. It's a $5 coupon. you know. And if you're coming in and you're going to pay $20 to walk, it's down to 15 Now you got that extra 5 bucks in your pocket to have a beer and a hamburger back in those days. <laughs> Nowadays, you ain't going to have a hamburger no. for 5 bucks. But but that was the, that was the goal. And, and I got to tell you, it worked out very well. Uh, I did the register receipt probably things for four or five years. And then supplementing that, we did it on our website. We had a, a, a website. We had the $5 coupon on there. And we had we would run the $5 coupon uh, in the Westerly Sun and the uh, Narragansett Standard Times and so forth. Mm -hmm. So you're right. That was a marketing thing. You know, some of these guys, I look at them, some of these guys open up their golf course and they're, they're putting them in these golf magazines. Waste, a total waste of money. I mean, I, I've been in the golf quite a bit in the past couple of years. I've never sat down and looked at a golf magazine. No, nobody. I mean, no. I have like engineering magazines right here, but like that's just because it goes along with my company. Yeah, you know. But, but no, and you're, and nobody. I I don't know of anybody. I never. I just don't see anybody cutting out a coupon out of a golf magazine. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, it, magazines are really tough because there's this. You know, this. She's actually the first sponsor of my podcast and it's called the Wickford way. And, uh, she has massive success in local areas in Wickford with marketing through magazines. Mm. And she gets very, uh, you know, a lot of people in that area love it. And it's a great community thing. And I feel like on a local level mm. target, it's, it's very exactly. You have a target audience. Yep. It's very useful. And so, like I said, in the sponsor of this episode, you guys should check it out. Check her out. Tiny Carol, the Wickford way, check them out. Um, but on a national level, you know, people just don't care anymore. You know, they'll just read it on Twitter or something like that. And, you know, I think magazines aren't what they used to be on terms of a national level. Like you have all those tabloids at Stop and Shop. I don't think I've, I personally, I've never picked up one of those magazines and looked at it and said, oh, look, Bradley Cooper and so-and-so are, you know, doing this. Like, who cares? Good you know? for you. I'm yeah. glad. Yeah. I don't, and I've never seen anybody do it before, yeah. you know? So, like, it, it, you know, it's interesting. Um, but, yeah. So, now I want to ask you a question based off of everything you've been involved in. All right. So, obviously, you mentioned you're a father and a grandfather. Other than that, what has uh, been the most, uh, you know, rewarding thing out of your career, and what has been the most difficult? Well, qu quite uh, honestly, the most rewarding is the profession that I chose, the law profession. Mm -hmm. uh, growing up as a kid, you know, we, we, uh, we see the TV lawyers, the Perry Masons, and all of these, and it's all glamorized, if you will, and 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 you you don't really realize the hours and the time. One one thing that I, I learned early on, if you want to be a successful lawyer, you're not, you're going to work seven days a week and you're going to work twelve hours a day. And as, there's no question about it. 
but you have to like the work that you're doing. I mean, I even to this day, I, I, I love, I read my lawyers weekly. I, I love reading the cases. I, and I, I'm watching this recent Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade and the case, case, the case going on with Mississippi right now. And the nice thing about looking at those things as a lawyer, you, you can relate to what they're saying, where most people from a layman's point of view, it kind of breezes over their head, you know? And it's just like uh, recently the, uh, the situation with that kid in Michigan killed those other kids and they arrested the parents, you know? And everybody's going, how can they do that? Well, some of us know what involuntary manslaughter is, involuntary manslaughter. I've had my share of those cases. I, two, uh, two recent cases I had pretty much did me in, though. I had, they're both family friends, and, uh, you know, when you're representing someone who's killed somebody or done a crazy thing and you know he's, they're good people, well, it stresses you right out because, you know, you, you want to do the best job you can for them, so... I, I had to I had to get out of that area of the law. Um, I um, it was the criminal law. I did quite a bit of it, especially back in the '90s. I was seemed like every other week. I've represented DWI cases, death resulting. I've represented hit and run, death resulting. I've represented shooters uh, accidentally shooting someone out hunting, uh, and it's it's very stressful because uh, you you know some of the incidents are not warranted uh you know or uh, just it's very stressful but i've also had the fortunate to be the probate judge in exeter for over 20 something years 26 27 years uh and i'm deputy probate judge in west greenwich i have been since 19 uh, 2008 my good friend up there the town administrator kevin breen was a state senator and i was a state rep we were both republicans at the time and after i got out of the legislature he asked me if i'd like to take on the deputy probate judgeship and i've been there since so that's another, uh, what have I been there, 13 years, 26 years in Exeter. So I find uh, I'm gravitating more towards probate. And I'll tell you a little interesting note. Uh, back when I first started, when I first got out of law school, there used to be a local lawyer named Edward Botel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember Ed Botel. He's probably way before your time. Ed Botel had an office right on Main Street over there, right across from the the, uh, the uh, Avery Funeral Home there. He lived in that house and had his office here. I remember Ed coming to me. We were sitting down one time chit-chatting. And he says, young man, do all the wills you can do. Do all the wills you can get. Don't charge a lot. Just do a lot of wills because that's your retirement. Mm -hmm. And Ed could have been no more. He was absolutely right. Right now, I probably have over 100 probate cases from people I did wills for back in the 80s, the 90s, even the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And what happens is is, is that my, my clientele age, those people are now the, coming in and, you know, I'm doing the probate estates. So I do a lot of probate now. In fact, this week I have six cases uh, in probate. I have Cumberland, Cranston. Uh, uh, I'm probate judge in West Greenwich on Wednesday. I have Narragansett, Hoppington, um, Charlestown. I have, and... It's just the, the way the product is. So I, I find the law practice, it's very, very rewarding. I, I, I did a lot of family court. I, I must have done two or 3,000 family court cases. And interesting enough, I was, I, I, probably 80% of my cases were women with kids. I, I made it upfront known when somebody walked in the door, whether you were uh, you know, a father or a mother, I'm a kid's lawyer. And uh, I don't let, 
I, I never would do anything that would hurt the kids. Kids are innocent victims of divorce. Mm -hmm. And I never, I never had the, just never had the, the, the inclination, needed the money, I should say, either. That I had to, you know, if some guy would come into me and say, I don't want to give her anything, I'd say, you got the wrong lawyer. And I had, I would have parents calling me and say, how come you're going to represent my son? I says, I don't agree with his philosophy, you know. He's got to take care of his kids. That's just the way it is. You know, we all got a responsibility. We, you know, we brought him in here. Don't, don't dump him off after you bring him in. And uh, so I, I would say 80% of my family court clients were, were women with kids. Mm -hmm. And that's just, it just gravitated that way. And I, to this day, I don't regret it at all. I mm -hmm. don't regret it at all. I still, I'm happy when I see somebody, a single mother and God bless them, or even a single father. I've got a few of those that it's a tough life out there, boy. And you, you raise kids by yourself and that's a big responsibility, big yeah. responsibility. Yeah. So there's this judge that has gone viral on social media a couple of times. Um, and his name is uh, Frank Cap Capiro. Do you know who that is? Sure. So I, I just... So it's I Caprio. Just, Caprio, okay. And he has two sons. His son David and I were in the house together. Okay. And his, his son Frank Caprio, yeah. Frank uh, ran for governor. Yeah. And I actually was one of Frank's supporters for governor. David and I were in the house and good friends together. Both, They're, they're both lawyers as well. And uh, they actually, Frank Caprio owns the Coast Guard house. Okay. In Narragansett. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. His okay. family has been down there for years, along with Joe Farmacola and a couple other guys. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I just figured I'd ask you because I've seen him a bunch of times, like on TikTok, on Facebook, whatever. Like some of his videos have hundreds of thousands of views. It's actually kind of crazy. Interesting fellow. I, I want to see if, maybe if I could get in contact with him and come on the podcast. I, I wouldn't surprise me. He is yeah. he's just a, just that type of guy. He's down to earth. Uh, he does a great job. He takes the, you know, he's, he's what they call a municipal court judge in Providence. Mm -hmm. uh, deals mostly with, with small civil crimes and not, not real, no criminal stuff. It's yeah. mostly parking violations yeah. or uh, zoning infractions or something. He's a municipal court judge. Been there a lot of years. Mm -hmm. But he, is, he has what some of us like to think he's taken the position of a judgeship and he, he doesn't use it with, with the so-called ego and power that some of them do you know he's down to earth you know Definitely. he'll lighten the moment up he'll he'll you know we have one in wakefield right now judge judge o'neill uh, great judge great judge uh, he 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 lightens it up you know and he always cracks me up because every time i got something before him i'm down there and he go i'm gonna take the oldest lawyer first isn't that you mr scott <laughs> I go, oh i guess it is now judge i I'm getting to be the oldest lawyer. I thought you were here. only 35, Joe. Yeah, yeah. My bar number. Well, they can tell. You can tell uh, from a lawyer's bar number how long they've been around. And you know they're at right around ten, eleven thousand now. And my bar number is two six nine six. So you know how long I've been around. You know I was there were only twenty six hundred lawyers when I started. <laughs> you wow. Know? Yeah. Now we got eleven thousand. <laughs> so obviously you've been, like I said before, involved in a lot of businesses. And you've turned a lot of businesses around for the better. What do you think gave you that itch and that talent to be able to do something like that? Because that's something that just doesn't, not everybody can do. Well, one thing a lot of people go into business, they, they think uh, they think too large in a sense. And, the you know, my thought has always been is to in, increase the, the, the volume, if you will, the profits and shrink the cost. 
you know, those are the, the two things. And, and most of those things, most of that area uh, comes in the, in the form of payroll, quite frankly. You know, when I first took over, um, when I first took over the golf course, you know, one of the problems was they were pumping out about 160000 in payroll. They were paying a girl to come in there $50-something-thousand a year. Well, then that was the big plus when they brought me in. I didn't take any pay, but I had my office upstairs. But what people don't realize is, is you, have to, you have to look at those numbers. I'm, I represent a number of people going to business. And, and some of them I tell them you, you shouldn't go into business. You shouldn't do it. I don't encourage anybody to go into the liquor business anymore. When I first started out in Newport at uh, Jimmy's Saloon, or actually it was Lucifer's Rat House at the time, then I took over Courtney's. I was partner of Courtney's on Long Wharf. At that time, there were two main beers. Main beer was Schlitz and Miller Highlight. And at that time, it was $4.20 a case for a case of Schlitz or a case of Miller Highlight. Now, and we were getting $3 a bottle of beer back in, in 74, wow. 75. Talk about margins, huh? Well, that was in Newport. Yeah. You know? Now, uh, a case of beer cost me $22, $23, and I'm getting three fifty dollars a bottle. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and I look back in those days, I mean, my help, back in those days, I was paying bartenders four fifty five dollars an hour. And now you, you, you pay them $12, $10, $12 an hour. And electric bills was the big is the biggest problem in restaurants and stuff. My electric bill at the golf course over there in the summertime is four or five thousand dollars. Holy know? crap! Uh, well, that's because you're running that giant fridge and. Well, it's not that so much. It's that pump outside. It's a three phase to to run the uh, the sprinklers. Oh, Every night you you okay. turn on the sprinklers at night and that and you've got a forty one acres out there that water's pumping all over yeah. the place and it needs a three phase pump. Sort of like uh, the the nine o'clock uh, sprinkler, like that's the haunted, it. I'm Happy Gilmore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the nine o'clock that's, sprinkler. Yeah, the sprinklers <laughs> is probably the 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 pump over there. I would say would be in the summertime is half my electric bill. Wow, no question. that's crazy. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's and, and that's you know you look at those things and right now, I'm I'm looking at uh, you know uh, the property taxes uh, and that's why I never understood why anybody would object to a golf course when I first took over over there. There was still a lot of the neighbors were against the golf course. When I represented them in town here, they didn't want a golf course over there. About two, three years into it, after I took it over, I got into a little disagreement with the council, if you will, and they pulled my liquor license. <laughs> so, you know, that was in, in like December. Well, it was actually in November when they, they didn't renew it. So they said, oh, we're going to pull your liquor license. So I got a little upset. They said, you got to reapply. So January came around. I reapplied for the liquor license to try to get it back. We had 80-something people at the hearing on the liquor license. There was at least a dozen of them who were my neighbors, all in favor of it, saying, give him his liquor license. He's a great neighbor. We like it. It's quiet. You know, we don't have a lot of problems. And I got my liquor license back. After that, after the hearing was done, they only left three people in the audience. All the rest of us left. Yeah. So I got my liquor license. So... You know, it's it's you, you run into those little things, but I, I liquor licenses aren't what they used to be. Uh, I remember Newport. If you had a liquor license back in the seventies, the license itself was worth forty, fifty thousand dollars. Wow. Yeah. Now, now you don't. They're not worth anything per se. The towns reissue it. You know, Richmond. When I had the liquor the place up on the hill there, there were probably six or seven licenses in town. I think now they're down to probably four or five. Mm -hmm. They're just they're not what they used to be, because. Um, I, and it's 
I try to tell people that, you know, they look at liquor as being a, a big thing. Oh, yeah, you made $3 a bottle of beer. How many bottles of beer do I have to sell to make any money? Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> If I may, if I sell a hundred bottles of beer at three bucks a piece, that's only three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. That barely pays the payroll and the heat and the electric. You know. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting because you people, you know, you go to Fenway, right, and it costs twelve dollars mm. for for beer, um, and I think that's insane. But when you really think about the margins back when you first started, it's what those margins are now. So, so really. I guess uh, it's not as crazy as you might think it is for $12 for beer. It's just inflation and how it works now. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and, and I think it's still a pain in the butt to get a liquor's li- liquor license because I know somebody that started recently started a business, and getting a bunch of licenses was a real pain, really? especially in Charlestown oh. and, uh, and Westerly. Hmm. So, yeah, well – more so in Charlestown. I'm not going to say the name of the business, <laughs> but um, yeah, because yeah. he complained a lot about it. And, oh. Yeah. But uh, so we're nearing the end of the podcast. It's been an hour and 21 minutes. Oh, my gosh. Which is kind of crazy. So the last question I ask all my guests is, what is one piece of advice you want to leave the listener? It could be about politics, life, business, anything. Well... I always say that you know you can uh, you can always live your life better, you know, in a sense. Most of us, uh, you know, we we it's a me generation. I hate to say it, but I think what's happening with people it's becoming a me generation, and I I still aspire to you know what do good for your fellow mankind, you know, because um, as you walk through life and you know. You don't have any regrets when you do something good, but you have a lot of regrets when you do something bad or you, you know, take advantage of situations and stuff. And uh, always respect uh, your fellow human being. And uh, I, I just don't understand. I never understood even growing up. I, I remember when I was growing up, uh, I grew up in Cincinnati, and I got to tell you a little story. Uh, I was in the legislature back in 76, 78. I'm a good friend of mine, Aaron Garabedian. His family owns the Warwick Mall. Aaron, good Republican, sitting next to me. And he was, he had a bill in wanting to recognize the Freedom Day or Armistice Day or what it was for Armenians. And he's punching me in the side. He's going, Joe, you got to stand up and talk about my bill. You got to stand up and talk about my bill. I go, I don't know, Aaron. What, what do you want me to say? I, I don't know what you want me to say. Just say what you're thinking. So I push my little button or raise my hand and the speaker calls on me and I stand up and I, I take a deep breath. I said, you know, my good friend Aram Garabedian here wants me to talk about his bill and I'm all in favor of his bill. But I got to tell you, I grew up in Cincinnati. I didn't grow up in New England, Boston, Providence. I said, I grew up in Cincinnati. And I said, I came to this area up here and I'm amazed. I grew up, all we knew were whites, blacks, and Jewish. I said, I didn't know there was such a thing as an Armenian, an Italian. <laughs> where did where'd you guys all come from? You know? <laughs> I thought we were just all Americans. Yeah. And and the whole place cracked up. I, I said, I, maybe I grew up stupid in, in a little small town. But I said, I didn't know there was so many other ethnic backgrounds, if you will, until I came to Rhode Island. And now up hmm. here, you know, we know that Rhode Island and, and Boston and New York we're all melting pots of the world, you know. I, I actually did my uh, DNA one time uh, 
through the, the DNA things there, and I find out that I'm 60% uh, Irish. I said, oh, good, good. Yeah. I'm 2% Asian. I don't know where that came from, but, <laughs> you know, I, I look at that, yeah. and I say, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I like the Irish. Well, I like them all. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know why we have to, you know, I look at the stuff going on in the Middle East over there, and I look at what's going on in this country, and, and uh, I, I look back at, at when, like, my good friend or my partner Ross and his family was growing up, Ross used to say, his father, as governor of Mississippi, said, you know, vote Democrat, but live like a Republican. I, I often said, what does that mean, Ross? He says, it means, you know, enjoy the money you got. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I said, oh, I mean, if I stay Republican, I'll get some money. You know? <laughs> but it, it's, it's a, you know, and when I was, I know when I was in the Navy, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think about a guy being black or white or, you know, Asian or what. It just wasn't, it wasn't something we thought about. It was just, we the guy was a friend he was a friend mm -hmm. you know and i still like I, I still think that and i don't get what's this country is is so divided and we've got to get rid of that and people have got to accept responsibility for themselves and not blame it on others so um, that's my advice is accept responsibility and uh, if you want to do something you know good take that responsibility and do good from it you know like you're doing you know oh, thank you. you're doing amazing um yeah it's been a great conversation because i've never really sat down and talked to you about you know what you've done in your life and i've always wanted to honestly since the day i met you and, and heard about the things you've done and uh great episode and again i really appreciate you taking your time out of your day and and coming i know you just drove up to warwick before here so you know amazing so so guys make sure to go to pinecrest <laughs> first of all uh, if you're in Rhode Island, or if you want to go for a drive, come to Pinecrest, and you can you can bring a camper and go in the That's parking right. lot, right? Yeah, yep. There's actually, it's funny enough, I can't remember where they're, I think they're from the out west somewhere, but the Willets, the same last name as me, camp out there, I don't remember, sometime during the summer. Their last name was Willets, and they're from, you know, out west somewhere, which I thought was funny. But, uh, yeah, anyways, so thanks, Joe. Check out Pinecrest in Richmond, Rhode Island, off of 112. And uh, make sure you say hello if you get there. Yes, we always like to, to greet and meet people. Yes, yeah. So, uh, guys, thanks for listening again. Make sure to check out the Knowledge is Power uh, podcast on patreon.com forward slash KIPPOD if you want to support the podcast. Uh, more exclusive content, ad free content coming out on that platform. Uh, and guys, make sure to follow the podcast on Instagram uh, at knowledge is power underscore Rhode Island. And I will catch you guys in the next one.